Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Alaris Equity Partners Income Trust fourth quarter 2020 earnings call. At this time, note that all lines are in a listen-only mode. But following the presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session. And if at any time during the call you require immediate assistance, please press star zero for the operator. Also note that the call is being recorded on Wednesday, March 10th, 2021. And I would like to turn the conference over to Mr. Daryl Driscoll. CFO, I'm sorry, please go ahead. Thank you, Sylvia, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Alaris Equity Partners Conference Call, a webcast to discuss financial results for the three and 12 months ended December 31st, 2020, as well as a brief corporate update. I'm Darren Driscoll, Chief Financial Officer of Alaris. I'm joined on this call by Steve King, President and CEO. After a short presentation from Steve and I, there will be a question and answer session. The lines will be placed on mute until then to avoid background noise. Before we begin, I'd like to remind our listeners that all amounts given are in Canadian dollars unless otherwise noted. Listeners are cautioned that comments made today may contain forward-looking information. This forward-looking information is based upon a number of important factors and assumptions, and as a result, actual results could differ materially. Additional information concerning the underlying factors, assumptions, and risks is available in last night's press release and our MDNA for the period under the headings Forward-Looking Statements and Risk Factors copies of which are available on CDAR at www.cedar.com as well as our website. Non-IFRS data is also presented and may differ from the way other companies present such data. And as with forward-looking statements, please refer to last night's press release and our MDNA for the period for more clarification regarding non-IFRS measures. All right, after that uh, very important notice, uh, after uh, you know an extraordinarily busy last uh, number of uh, month we were really quite anxious to get our results out so i'll share you with some highlights and before passing it off to steve so q4 revenue of uh, 32 million and uh, 27 million of normalized ebitda was boosted by the kimco catch-up which resulted in 100 percent of their contracted distributions in 2020. Uh, body contours paid their q2 deferred distributions in q4 so now they were 100 percent caught up by year end and we received common dividends from Amur and Curry Electric, uh, obviously caused a bump from our recent guidance. Uh, 2020 revenue for the year of 109.6 million, a normalized EBITDA of 85.7 million, uh, marginally off prior year results due to the impact of COVID, mostly on on, on Planet Fitness, uh, but also a large redemption first thing in January, uh, SBI, uh, with uh, obviously the deployment for 2020 certainly back back year end loaded. Uh, from our outlook a year ago, we only missed 4% of revenue uh, for the entire pandemic year, uh, which, was, which consists of nine months of Planet Fitness distributions, a small amount of Providence partially offset by a big recovery from Kimco. A record deployment in the last 12 months of $350 million. That includes five new partners, three follow-on investments. Run rate revenue today, uh, that translates into run rate revenue today of $136 million. Uh, just over $3 a share, and that's compared to $108 million and uh, $2.70 per share for the prior year. 
Run rate EBITDA of $124 million, or $2.77 per share, uh, compared to $90.8 million and $2.40 per share uh, a year ago. Our payout ratio today is at its lowest historical level, between 65 and 70%. In the statements, you'll see a significant increase in fair value at December 31st, uh, just over $23 million, or $0.52 cents a share. Um, the biggest ones were Kimco, up $6.5 million U.S. Amur was up $5 million Canadian on their preps and common, basically restoring what was written down in Q1 as that business uh, came charging back. Uh, Planet Fitness, uh, up $2.8 million U.S. with the restart of partial distributions in, in, in January. And I would include that the fair value for Planet Fitness is still not accounting for full distributions that we do expect to start in July and starting to catch up unpaid distributions in January 2022. So we'll reflect that when it happens. Axiom was also up a couple of million U.S. and other smaller increases were LMS, Federal Resources and Fleet. And I'd add that there were no fair value decreases in Q4. A reclass from unrealized loss to realized loss in the quarter due to Providence uh, occurred. We wrote off Providence to nil in March. Uh, as their, and their bank foreclosed late in 2020, so there's no impact to earnings or EBITDA in the quarter or annually, but it's just a nuance uh, from an accounting standpoint. Uh, big changes on the borrowing front to, to match our growth. In one year, our EBITDA has gone from uh, 90 to almost 125 million. Our banking syndicate has been extremely supportive and responsive from right around the uncertain times around March, April, and May to just recently to support significant new deployment. Since year-end, we've increased the facility from $330 million to $400 million, while adding a seventh bank to our syndicate. Also, uh, we have the covenant flexibility over the next six months to navigate around deployment and the potential redemptions of Kimco and, and Federal Resources. We added common shares on our recent deployment in FNC, Edgewater, and Brown and Settle since year-end, and added disclosure in RMDNA as our expectations are very different in each case uh, but from other than Planet Fitness, we do expect cash yield on those shares over the long term. We assume a small amount of the common distributions in our run rate, but since they're discretionary, it's hard to build that in until we see a regular pattern. Uh, from a partner update standpoint, we are extremely proud of our portfolio, generating only a few percent less revenue than forecast a year ago. And the revenue generated has a weighted average ECR of now over 1.7 times at its highest ever point. Uh, that's up from about one and a half times uh, a year ago. Um, our ECR stats, we now have 15 of our 20 companies, that's 75% with an ECR over, over one and a half and six over two times. And that's compared to a year ago, nine out of 16 over one and a half and only three over two times. So, uh, you know, massive improvement in the overall portfolio. Another year of weighted average increase in the performance metric of around 1%, and I certainly would not have expected that to, uh, back in April. Uh, based on uh, unaudited information, more companies with positive resets than negative, which this year is quite an accomplishment. Planet Fitness restarted partial distributions in January. They're paying 40% of contracted amounts. And as I mentioned, on track to restart full distributions in July. Uh, nothing, unsured, but, uh, nothing assured at this point, but uh, um, if, if they continue at their current pace, that would knock about 5% off our payout ratio. Overall, couldn't be happier with the performance of our partners in 2020 throughout the pandemic. A couple of unique items worth expanding on. Uh, Kimco has continued a successful run, revenue and EBITDA at all-time high levels. 
They're paying us full distribution, inclusive of a 6% max reset. With our support, we're actively looking for sources to take us out. It could be 80 to 100 million Canadian. Keep in mind, this is a company that a year ago was not paying current distributions and hadn't been for a lengthy period of time, of several years of uncertainty. And after some significant write-ups in 2020, still sits at only just over $40 million U.S. on our books. I'll expand on that. In U.S. dollars, we have press preferred shares on our books at $26 million, prom notes of 14 and AR of 2 when the redemption price of the PREFs is 35 over that 26 book value, plus the face value of the loans and AR of 18 million, and that's the minimum 53 million USD in our, our press release. There are also 20 million of unpaid distributions that are contractually owed on a redemption, but not on our books, as well as an equity kicker we negotiated a few years back. Nothing is sure, and if nothing transpires, we will certainly collect our contracted and growing yield and unpaid distributions over time rather than in a redemption event. I should note that a Kimco redemption would have almost no impact on our payout ratio because of the, all the unlocked value I just described. It wouldn't have any impact immediately, based on, but based on our typical deal terms, we'd be able to redeploy that $100 million and receive $14 million of revenue compared to the $6 million Canadian we currently receive from Kimco. An incredible story and full credit to the Kimco management for getting this business ready for what has turned out to be a transformational period for the company. Federal Resources is another company that's exploring redemption alternatives. Nothing imminent nor assured, but a redemption would be at over $10 million U.S. above our book value and well over $100 million Canadian and result in an above average IRR over the term of the investment. Uh, both of these would be uh, tremendously successful results uh, and, and, and provide over $200 million of Canadian of proceeds that would reduce our debt levels and, more importantly, provide additional capital for, re for investment in 2021 and 2022. Uh, I note this year was a conversion to an income trust and a name change to uh, Laris Equity Partners on September 1st, which resulted in a number of very interesting accounting impacts that are explained in detail in the notes or our financial statements. The trust conversion has also allowed us to retain more capital internally by reducing admin expenses related to operate, operating subsidiaries in the Netherlands, and more importantly, reducing our effective tax rate on U.S. revenue, returning us to an overall tax rate comparable to where we were pre-2019, and therefore lowering our payout ratio. A couple of improvements to our disclosure worth mentioning. Uh, started in Q3, we condensed the partner fair value table in note four to show the base currency to try to take some of the FX noise away. Uh, made a significant change again in Q3 to our partner section in the MBA, where we now summarize key points in a single table and then provide commentary on those partners where additional explanation is warranted. And finally, in the MBA, we've added additional disclosure around our use of common shares, why we've added that to investment strategy and our expectations around each company. Hope you find all these changes useful. And our press release contains our first official commentary on our ESG plan. We've engaged external advisors to assist us in developing the ESG policy over the next 12 months. We've taken great pride in paying close attention to all these issues throughout our company history and look forward to formalizing our thoughts in the next 12 months or so. Our outlook for 2021, based on all that recent deployment, uh, some of it late in Q1, obviously, uh, calls for revenue of 32.5 million. Um, our G&A did spike in 2020 uh, due to the trust conversion and some additional legal bills. Uh, we do expect a more normal G&A expense run rate in 2021 of around $12.5 million. 
so that's all I had from a financial update standpoint. I'll now toss it over to Steve King before we go to question and answer. Great. Thanks, Darren. Um, obviously, uh, huge changes in our company since the last time we spoke uh, in November after, uh, after our Q3. Uh, without a doubt, the busiest period of time uh, in our 17-year history at Alaris. Um, you know, so 350 million of deployment, as Darren mentioned, over the last 12 months. That's uh, at least 50% higher than uh, any previous 12-month period in our history. Uh, there's a few different reasons for that growth. I'll, I'll, I'll go through them all so that people can understand and and uh, and also kind of figure out uh, kind of where we're going uh, and and uh, the opportunities ahead for us. Uh, one of the things that we saw, I guess, in the short term during the pandemic was. Uh, banks, especially in the U.S., uh, which is our primary market, being much tighter in terms of their uh, their lending um, capabilities, and and uh, uh, so that made it much more difficult on the private equity investors that we compete against uh, as they use high levels of debt in their typical proposals. Uh, also, safe to say that the entrepreneurs that we that we market to and that we want to partner with, uh, we're more debt averse than uh, than they typically would be uh, during a time like that. So that made our our structure uh, very you know very kind of you know uh, well suited for that kind of a market where we don't use uh, debt uh, in a typical transaction. Uh, the next factor is something that we also saw coming out of the Great Recession in in 2009, which is. Uh, coming out of difficult times, uh, entrepreneurs, and this is you know the way uh, any any good entrepreneur is wired, uh, they see more opportunity um, uh, coming out of tough times. And so, the most expensive uh, security that you can issue as uh, as a company, whether you're public or private, uh, is common shares. Uh, they participate in all growth. And uh, so, for an entrepreneur coming out of a, a trough, uh, they don't want to issue. Com, uh, as many common shares. Uh, if they can limit the number of common shares they issue, they're going to do that. So um, uh, our structure of preferred shares uh, uh, for the majority of our of our investment certainly favored uh, that kind of environment and, and still does. Uh, the final reason, though, uh, for our success, which I think is is by far the biggest one, is the tweaks that we've made in our in our offering to entrepreneurs over the last couple of years, in particular, and that is, uh, ironically enough, given my la- my last paragraph, is adding some common equity along with our preferred shares, and uh, that has had uh, a number of different impacts uh, on us uh, for our shareholders and also for the entrepreneurs that uh, that we market to. So, the first thing that it does for us. Uh, and our shareholders is it really balances the risk profile of our investments. Um, even though uh, well, you know for, we've been doing this for 17 years, so we've got a really good book on on our kind of risk profile and our, our return profile, uh, and it's been good. We've we've had an IRR uh, compounding at 17% a year over those 17 years, but we can think of many situations over the, that period where. Uh, a company has had large swings one way or the other, and sometimes in both both ways uh, in in a single partnership. Uh, Providence would be a good example of that, where they had uh, just absolutely enormous growth uh, for a period of time. They had EBITDA of over two hundred million dollars a year, and uh, if we would have had common equity along with our prefs, we probably could have taken out as much money in common dividends during that time as our entire cost base, if not. Quite a bit more, um, you know, and, and so now uh, Providence was, uh, 
you know, unable to sustain that uh, that kind of level. They they lost their business, uh, you know, eventually because of COVID. Um, and so our, our downside is is 100%. Uh, so we would have had some securities that would have given us more upside to match the the risk that uh, that would have made the the risk balance much better. Uh, and we can think of several opportunities uh, that we've had over the last 17 years where things like that happen, not, not to the same extent as Providence, but uh, uh, the same kind of thing where we could have, you know, reduced our risk, increased our return by having a blend of, of press in common. The second thing uh, with uh, adding some common shares is that uh, they will typically pay a cash yield, as Darren mentioned. Uh, the only one in our portfolio of six common equity uh, investments that we have that we don't expect near-term dividends is Planet Fitness. Uh, they have, I'm not going to say unlimited growth opportunities, but they have a lot of growth opportunities to open new clubs. They need all of the capital that they can get to do that. Um, with that being said, the, the multiples being paid for these kind of companies just continues to go up and up and up. So we do expect a very nice uh, overall return on the Planet Fitness common equity uh, on exit whenever that happens. But for the most part, these common shares will pay dividends. Uh, an incredible example of this uh, is Cary Electric, a 97-year-old family-owned business. They would not give up control, but they would give up a small minority amount. In fact, they really liked that we were going to own the same class of shares that they owned, uh, even in a minority way. And uh, so we invested 17 million in carry, 16.1 in in pref shares, 900 grand in in uh, in common shares, and in year one we got a 340 thousand dollar cash dividend on the 900 thousand dollar cost base uh, common. So a 38 percent yield in year one, and obviously that's that's an extraordinary outcome. But uh, with that being said, based on carries projections for this year, that uh, that number is expected to be significantly higher uh, for 2021. So we believe that the cash yield, uh, as well as the potential gains on exit, will significantly increase our overall returns uh, over the course of time. And the final advantage, uh, and probably the biggest one, to be quite honest, is, is the impact that it's had on our ability to deploy capital. And this is something that we've seen over the last uh, nine months uh, in, in Technicolor. So, um, uh, many deals, uh, I would say the majority of deals that we see out there from the advisory network in the U.S. require more of the capital structure to be replaced than what just straight preferred shares would be prudent for. So in order to compete on those deals, uh, we need to go further into the capital structure and the inclusion of some common equity along with our prefs allows us to do that. Uh, we have been eliminated from uh, kind of deal processes for, uh, on dozens and dozens of occasions just because of our inability to write a big enough check uh, because we couldn't go far enough with just prefs. Um, the other part of it is, uh, and this I think has been a kind of a, uh, kind of a secret uh, uh, to, our, to our success here, is it's also just eliminated a, a misconception, a stigma, if you will, amongst entrepreneurs and their advisors that our preferred shares are debt and not equity. And uh, because they have a yield attached to them, a lot of entrepreneurs who you know, maybe don't have a, a background in finance, they would just view it as, as debt. And uh, that would hurt us in, uh, in our proposals. Now that we're coming in with a blend of common and prefs, they are clearly seeing us as the equity partner that we are. Uh, but two classes of shares, one being significantly cheaper, that being the prefs, 
than the common. So in order to get to our prefs, they're happy to give us a minority stake uh, of their company in, in the common. And uh, our win rate on proposals has, uh, has gone through the roof over, uh, over the last year. So uh, that one, I think, is, is probably one of the biggest reasons for our success. So all in all, the tweak in our business uh, has been a large factor in, uh, in our success over the last 12 months. Um, amazing to think that even if we don't deploy another dollar for the rest of this year, that our EBITDA per share uh, will have grown by around 20%, 21 over 20 um, not even in, including any expected increases from our partners like Planet Fitness. So uh, even with doing two equity offerings, the capital deployment uh, has been uh, nicely accretive for our shareholders. And uh, one of the great things for me, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. I've always had the long-term goal of having no, no uh, partner more than 10% of our revenue stream, and we're almost there. Our, our biggest is uh, just around 12% now. And um, uh, lots to come. Uh, on the future as well. We've got uh, an expanded credit line. We're generating now more than $25 million of excess free cash flow per year that we can compound into, into growth going forward. And as Darren mentioned, we're, uh, we're extremely anxious and excited about uh, potentially crystallizing two very large gains uh, in our portfolio and Kimco and Federal Resources with, that we'll use to fund uh, more growth as well. Uh, I can't end this talk without uh, thanking our incredible team here at Alaris. Uh, to close five new partnerships, two follow-ons, a corporate reorg into a trust, two equity offerings, and manage the relationships with 20 different partners through a pandemic, it's by far the biggest achievement that I've witnessed in our 17 years. Our staff have worked around the clock, subjected themselves to mandatory quarantines after traveling to the U.S., uh, all in order to achieve these results for our shareholders. So I couldn't be more thankful. So uh, Sylvie, we'll, uh, we'll turn it over to uh, the questions at this time. Thank you, Mr. King. Ladies and gentlemen, if you do have a question, please slowly press star followed by one on your touchtone phone. You will then hear a three-tone prompt acknowledging your request. And should you wish to withdraw your question, simply press star followed by two. And if you are using a speakerphone, we do ask that you please lift the handset before pressing any keys. Please go ahead and press star 1 now if you have any questions. And your first question will be from Scott Robinson at RBC. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Morning. My first question is regarding the potential redemption of federal resources. Uh, you know, given the size of that investment, do you think there's less of a need to try and sell Kimco now uh, or maybe potentially wait to get you know, more credit for the EBITDA that it's generated over the past year uh, before selling it? Uh, how should we think about that? Well, uh, just to be clear, Scott, uh, the company isn't for sale. Um, so uh, this, this would be a situation uh, unlike we've ever seen in our 17 years, to be quite honest, where the company has grown so much and paid off uh, all of their debt. Uh, they've just got a, a huge amount of, of cash flow, so they could they could fund this redemption uh, out of cash and, and uh, you know, fairly modest amount of senior debt on their, uh, on their company. So obviously that's, that's a much lower cost of capital. Uh, typically we're being, you know, we're just uh, selling along with the, uh, the founder, but in this case uh, they can get rid of us with, uh, with just uh, cheap senior debt. So uh, very easy for them. So this isn't something that uh, we're in control of, but something that I am, 
uh, happy to do because this would be uh, a very, very large return for us. Uh, we have uh, more than enough uh, opportunities out there, as we've seen, seen over the last nine months, uh, to, re to replace it. So, you know, we're here to make money uh, for our shareholders. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I think that's going to be very good for our balance sheet and, uh, and funding our future growth so that we don't have to come back to the market again. And I'd say on, 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 on Kimco, there's just so much unlocked value that uh, that's why we are uh, we are pushing those uh, those redemption options. Uh, you know that 20 million of unpaid distributions, the uh, the uh, untapped value difference in the fair value. Like, we don't get that uh, except on a redemption value. That would take a, a number of years to collect over time. And so by uh, by far, it's in our best interest, everybody's best interest to. Uh, to uh, to get that and 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 again pay down debt and, and provide more capital. Got it. Thank you. Um, and I guess my second question is on capital deployment, uh, and perhaps if you could try and quantify the impact that you know this common equity option has given you guys. Um, like if I you know think about how you've described the business before, um, you know if if maybe you know a few years ago you submitted, call it a billion dollars worth of LOIs for investments. Um, you know, what would that be like today that now you have common equity? Like, are you able to, you know, perhaps submit like 1.2 billion or like, you know, how has that sort of impacted uh, the broader landscape of your capital deployment opportunities? Yeah, it, that's a tough one to, uh, to put a number on yet. I, I think we need a little bit more time to see what normal years are like. Obviously, uh, 2020 was, was not a normal year at all. We saw very little deal flow um, kind of from from March until uh, August, and then it started to really pick up. So it, it's it's a little tough to tell right now. What I can tell you though is just our win rate. Our, our win rate has been, I would say, at least double uh, what it has been historically on the deals that we have bid on. So um, so that's the exciting part because I think it is a double whammy. I think we can bid on more. And we seem to be winning a higher percentage. So um, I'm excited to see what uh, you know what uh, the rest of this year looks like. Uh, and that's again, like I mentioned, it's it's why we are excited about Federal Resources and and Kimco uh, and not uh, and not fighting that. Uh, we we've got lots of opportunities ahead of us. Perfect. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Next question will be from Scott Fromson at CIBC. Please go ahead. Thank you, and uh, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, just a, a question about the uh, resets. Uh, the 1% average that you uh, referenced sounds kind of low given the economic uh, recovery underway. Is this uh, conservatism on uh, the part of uh, either you or, uh, or your investment partners or, or both? Or does it reflect partly the portfolio resistance through the uh, early stages of the pandemic and uh, the resets are kind of more normal course? Yeah, Scott, it's, it's, it is uh, the fact that it's up, I think, is an incredible uh, stat. You know, you had companies like uh, Planet Fitness and Body Contours uh, that were shut down for three months. And so there's no way they're going to have a uh, same store sales increase. Uh, you had others that did have some restrictions and softness. Uh, we did have others like LMS, uh, Federal Resources, and Chemco that were at the top of the collar, and we ended up with more increases than decrease. But uh, if, if you'd have asked me for my estimate last April or May, I would have said down five or six percent. So 
the fact that it's up is a great stat, and uh, and uh, it certainly is pointing towards a very good uh, 2022 reset because you do have some big hitters that that uh, did have at least two, three, four months of softness in 2021. Yeah, and I think I think Scott too. It's fair to say that uh, a lot of the recovery has been has been very late in the year and and into 2021. So uh, you know, I think if you look at GDP numbers, uh, you know, as, as a whole, obviously they're going to be well down in uh, 2020 versus 2019, and uh, people expecting a big recovery this year. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think the same goes for our portfolio. Yeah, I think given the uncertainty, that's uh, probably prudent. Uh, thanks, gentlemen. Uh, next quarter, I'll turn it over uh, for others. Thank you. Next question will be from Jeff Fenwick at Cormark Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, right, good morning, everyone. Morning, Jeff. Uh, so just uh, one follow-up on the resets there, guys. The um, the one I wanted to ask about was BCC. I think in the MDMA you said it's just a negative reset, but you didn't give a <clears throat> didn't give a number there. And I guess maybe you're just finalizing the uh, the year-end figures from them. But is there is the expectation that would be sort of near the lower end of the the collar? Yeah, we, we, we're literally just going through that uh, process uh, because it is the same uh, clinic sale. There were a whole bunch of different uh, things we had to look at from clinic closures and how that fed into the calculation. So uh, we were, you know, their overall uh, revenue was almost back to, 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 to historical numbers. Their EBITDA was up, but their same, I guess, clinic revenue will be, will be down, and we do think it will be closer to that to bottom end. But that is included in our 1% uh, uh, weighted average uh, uh, calculation. Yeah, a lot of the improvements in their EBITDA, Jeff, was because their their costs were so much lower. They they spent a significant amount less on advertising uh, would be the key area that was uh, quite a bit less for them. So they've they've made uh, more money than they ever have uh, on slightly fewer sales. But it, it bodes really well going into this next year too, where you know they they won't have a three month period that uh, that they were closed down for. And they're still, you know, expecting to uh, to spend less on on the advertising because they've they found that uh, they were probably overspending a couple of years ago. So, uh, good things ahead for for BCC. Okay, thanks. That's helpful. Uh, and then I wanted to ask about your credit facility. I mean, you've done a good job there of, of renegotiating that higher and the the flexibility around the covenants. And I, and I guess one thought that I had is just as you're getting bigger. Uh, more diversified, adding more people into that syndicate, um, and, and sort of battle-tested through the last year here. You know, I'm surprised they've left the uh, the normalized, let's call it, debt to EBITDA number still down at two and a half. And, and do you think that's something down the road here you might have a bit of flexibility on uh, negotiating higher as well? Yeah, that's that's hard to say. I mean, I I, I do think that uh, you know we still are a unique uh, um, group. We have pushed that from. Gosh, it was one and a half uh, a couple of years ago. So we have made good strides. I don't think we want to be much higher than that, uh, quite frankly. We want to keep a, a conservative balance sheet, uh, and and the growth has really come uh, from the uh, out of uh, the increased uh, EBITDA we've had. So you know, three times 125 is you're you're almost at the at the peak. So uh, no, I, I you know we we we've got the short-term flexibility that we need. Uh, is there a chance for a longer-term flexibility? Um, I'll have to phone my pal Dominic at uh, HSBC, but I think uh, we're in pretty good uh, we're in pretty good spot where we are, and uh, and, and and all we need for the next uh, certainly 12 months or so. Okay. 
And then I uh, wanted to uh, move over to the dividend policy here. I mean, you, you've kind of, you know, settling into a little more normalized environment here. Things are progressing well. I, I know there's a couple of uh, the redemptions that may come in that are larger, but just sort of philosophically, how are, how are you thinking about the dividend here going forward? Are you going to return to being a, uh, uh, a more consistent, I guess, dividend uh, in, increase uh, as the book continues to grow here. I, I know you've uh, set a lower payout ratio, but you look pretty comfortable, uh, certainly on that uh, on that uh, perspective. So, how are you thinking about the, pol the policy here as you go through 2021? Uh, I guess Jeff, we're, we're going to keep an open mind on it. Um, you know, our our stock has been bizarrely volatile uh, given our fundamentals, and so it does give you pause. Um, you know, uh, with a stock that uh, goes up and down as much as ours, uh, you don't want to be as beholden to the capital markets to fund your growth as you would if you were, you know, properly traded. And uh, so that does, you know, kind of make us favor continuing to lower the payout ratio uh, more and more so that we can fund more of our growth uh, internally. So with that being said, um, you know, we're coming out of a, a very volatile time and a very volatile market. So I do want to keep an open mind on that. I think if our if our stock trades where it should trade and, and uh, isn't as volatile, I think I would look to start increasing that dividend again. Okay, thanks for that color over to you. Thank you. Next question will be from Gary Ho at Desjardins. Please go ahead. Thanks and, uh, and good morning. Uh, just, uh, Steve, just going back, to your common equity investment topics here. So I see that you know, you're including a few million in your run rate revenue guidance. Maybe you can comment how sustainable that is and what are some of the key contributors um, to that lo looking out and, and kind of point us to kind of some, some of the lumpiness that might be with, uh, with some of those common investments. Yeah, we, we've tried to make the, uh, the run rate estimate uh, very conservative, Gary. Uh, that's one area that we always will be conservative on. And, and uh, surprised with uh, with uh, with extra dividends coming in because they they are less you know they're, they're obviously not they're not structured um, and they're so they're less predictable. You never know when a company could have a, a huge growth opportunity pop up where they divert some of that capital away from common dividends and, and into growth. So we will always be conservative on that and and uh, things will change as well. Like uh, Brown and Settle is one of our largest. Uh, uh, common equity investments. Uh, they have uh, a small amount of debt on their balance sheet and between us and the other common shareholders, which is management, uh, we've decided that the next kind of year, year and a half will be spent, uh, you know, paying off all of that debt. And then after that point, the dividend will be substantial. So, you know, right now, you know, we don't have anything in there for it, but, uh, you know, that's just a good example of, of you know, decisions that will be made by each company's boards. Uh, so we'll, you know, I think we'll be pretty conservative, Darren. I don't know if you want to break it down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I think that all, that also each company does have different uh, dividend track records. You know, some pay it monthly, some quarterly, some annually. Uh, and so it, it won't be a regular, you know, for building into your models, it won't be, uh, if we say $2 million hour run rate, it won't be $500,000 a quarter, I, I assure you. <laughs> and so a little tougher to track, but... Uh, I think eventually you'll just get used to seeing that here's uh, when these companies pay, and and we'll record them when they are uh, when they are paid. So a little tough to predict, but we certainly, as Steve mentioned, think that two million dollar is uh, is uh, is meant to be very conservative. Got it. 
And then, and then Steve, maybe um, uh, I'm not sure if you've done the work. Um, I think in your previous comments, you have mentioned that you know if you guys did do some common in your prior investments, what would the IRR be? Um, I think right now you said it's 17%, but what would that have been if you guys invested, I don't know, another 10% common in some of those previous exits? Yeah, I haven't done that uh, analysis, Gary, um, but certainly, you know, looking at our, our table of, uh, of exits over the years, uh, it would have been substantial. Uh, you know, I, I look back at uh, uh, LifeMark and SQL and Mid-Atlantic Healthcare and, and some, of, some of these companies that ended up selling for, for very high multiples um uh and uh you know the common shareholders did uh, unbelievably well uh certainly two to three times higher IRRs than we had as preferred shareholders so uh so just anecdotally um uh i would uh, you know i wouldn't venture a guess on what our blended IRR would be but uh, certainly the the common would have been significantly higher and the ones where we've had losses you know the you know the percentage losses on the common would have been uh, probably Pretty similar to that, so um, so yeah, it it, uh, it certainly is going to pay off for us, and uh, and obviously already has with our deployment. Got it. And then maybe for Darren, the fair value accounting for the commons, you know, are they similar to the prefs? I.e., are you just using a discount on the projected dividend stream to come up with um, with the fair value movements quarter to quarter? No, as it uh, turns out, it's a much more difficult process, Gary. <laughs> we. Uh, um, you know, it's you know the prefs are easy. It's uh, you've got a, f a fixed dividend uh, that goes up or down, and you guess that you have a discount rate you back into, and you have a growth rate you assume, and it's 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 a much easier uh, mathematical equation for the common. Uh, it, you can't just say uh, it's based on the dividend. Uh, we're looking at basically a weighted average cost of capital for the individual company. We're looking at their forecast. We're looking at uh, in uh, the multiples that that industry trades in, and so it is a uh, far more uh, involved, and so uh, my uh, accounting team is uh, quite looking forward to uh, Q1 and Q2. And now we stack up more and more common investments. That'll be uh, quite an exercise. And, and again, we are learning as we go, working through it with KPMG. But certainly, uh, far more involved than the than the perhaps just so many more assumptions going into it uh, um, uh, that are that are also not just uh, the company's visit, but but would have some external influence as well. Got it. Okay, and then just my last question on Planet Fitness update. Um, at the current run rate with the memberships down kind of 12%, you know, is that supportive of the ramping up the distribution back up to 100%? And I guess in the discussions with lenders, you know, if Planet Fitness can support, um, you know, say a distribution up to 80%, you know, can you go up to that or is it uh, all or, or not, nothing arrangement here? We, we, we need uh, we need the, the company to be on side the leverage covenant uh, that's been put in place, and so certainly they are on track at the, at this level to to do so. If they are on track on side with their leverage covenant, then that the concept you described that sort of um, uh, ratchet, you know, if, if there's only enough cash flow to pay 80 or 90 percent uh, on their fixed charge coverage ratio, then they could do that. But uh, uh, if they're on side with their leverage, uh, we believe that they will be able to pay that uh, full amount with some with some room. But again, that is one that over the next few months we're watching very closely. We like what we're seeing. We love the fact that uh, you know the U.S. is way ahead of us. Uh, I, don't, I guess I don't love the fact, but it's good for Planet Fitness that they're way ahead of us from a vaccination standpoint. Uh, and uh, so that you know people are returning to gyms and uh, states are opening up and. 
Um, but that is one that, that uh, you know, could have some near-term volatility, but uh, we're certainly, we certainly like what we're seeing. Yeah, every, every week has been uh, has seen progress on the week before and their, their membership numbers. Um, one of the biggest impacts uh, on the way down was uh, mandatory masks. Uh, so it was one thing to actually close the gyms. Uh, it was quite another to make people work out in masks. So uh, states, you know, uh, going against the uh, mandatory mask restrictions, uh, as we're starting to see, is, is a big factor for them. But we are, even before that, uh, they, they don't have any states in their system that have gone no masks yet. But uh, that will be a big driver for them. But uh, as I say, each, each week has been uh, better than the week before. Uh, for the last many weeks, they've gone from uh, I think minus 15 and a half to uh, to minus 12 percent, and that that is a number that uh, that we can live with to get our full distributions. Okay, that's that's great to hear. Um, that's it for me. Thank you very much. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. Next question will be from Zachary Evershed at National Bank. Please go ahead. Hey everyone, congrats on the quarter. So hey, with Kimco and Fed looking at redeeming and DNT picking away, are there any other partners that have been building a net cash position that might be used for partial redemption? No, nothing of the you know, and, and, and Federal Resources is really an outlier. I mean, their their business uh, quadrupled <laughs> through the last uh, uh, couple of years, so they're the only one that would have sort of the ability to do that. Uh, and uh, DNT is just uh, there's a small contractual sweep, so it'll just be a few million a year as uh, as cash flow allows, but no, nobody else in that uh, in that situation. Yeah, you look back over our 17 years, and like we're we're coming in for you know a, a fairly significant chunk of the capital structure, uh, an amount that can only be handled by equity, um, and so that's why we haven't been redeemed just by refinancing, um, other than uh, once, which was. Uh, end of the role, which took them 13 years to do, and uh, and now potentially uh, federal resources. Every other uh, redemption that we've had has been a full sale of the business. So uh, yeah, it's it's typically a very difficult thing to take us out just with debt. And when somebody looks at alternatives on the equity side, we remain the cheapest equity partner that they can find. So that's that's uh, that's kind of how we uh, think of things and how it's gone over the last 17 years. Appreciate that. And then still on the topic of redemption, for Kimco, the redemption value is a pretty wide range. What factors go into that calculation? Yeah, so that, that uh, the, the, the $20 million U.S. swing is the uh, how much of those unpaid distributions we get. So, you know, the, the 53 in our press release is, is basically our, our uh, redemption value of the press of 35 and the face value of the notes and the AR of, uh, of another 18. So that's 53 million. Uh, you can get to 73 million collecting all of those unpaid distributions, and I think you can even get higher than that with the, with the uh, warrant that we have in place. But uh, those were numbers we were comfortable putting in as a range, and uh, then it will just it will depend on uh, uh, what they can get from a, a, a financing source, and and, and we're, we're going to be involved in that uh, in that conversation. But this is one again with so much unlocked value that we are. Uh, encouraging uh, management to go uh, to do, and uh, and uh, they have lots to gain uh, by doing so as well. And and uh, I think fair to say that we probably wouldn't close on a transaction that ended up uh, with us getting paid at the bottom of that range. And uh, I don't think the uh, the management team would would do something uh, at that level either. 
great color. Thanks. I'll turn it over. Thanks. Thank you. As a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, if you do have any questions, please slowly press star followed by one on your touchtone phone. Next is a follow-up from Scott Robinson at RBC. Please go ahead. Hi, thanks. I just one quick follow-up um, on SCR. So we've seen a decent pickup in mining activity and interest in Ontario over the last few months. Uh, can you perhaps provide some color as to SCR's positioning in the market? Um, and maybe also talk a bit about what the upside from that investment could look like in terms of cash flow, um, but also potentially, you know, fair value should we see sustained levels of activity there. Yeah, SCR, we are uh, thrilled with what we're seeing out of SCR. The, uh, the Sagan brothers have done a tremendous job managing through a, a very volatile last number of years, but uh, the last 12 months has been uh, exceptionally good. Uh, each month we get in is a little better than the next uh, they are a service provider. They've got long-term customer relationships with the big guys that are also uh, adding new customer relationships uh, as, as we speak. So uh, SCR, I think, does uh, certainly in the near term have significant upside. Uh, we have changed uh, the way we have uh, um, calibrated the SCR investment. So they're paying us uh, basically a fixed amount of $4.2 million a year. And then there is a cash flow sweep depending on, on the results of the business. Uh, that can allow us to go even above our contracted amount uh, to try to get back some of those amounts that were missed uh, historically. So, uh, you know, the fair value reflects none of that. This is, uh, that, that, uh, that concept is brand new starting in January here. And uh, so I think you'll see by Q2, Q3, uh, what are we seeing as far as that sweep amount? How is that affecting our long-term outlook? But, uh, you know, their, their numbers, their coverage ratios has increased significantly as has their revenue in EBITDA. And do you have handy the amount of distributions that have been uh, deferred or, or I guess cancelled over the last few years for them? Yeah, we, we uh, it's, it's, it's a little under uh, 20, uh, but again, we have no, uh, this is not, uh, this is a little different than this, this is no uh, fault of theirs, so that is an amount they contractually owe us. Uh, if there is upside, they'll be able to share that with us. If there isn't, uh, we just won't get it, and that's uh, that's a deal that uh, that we were happy to strike. Uh, we obviously need to make sure we're aligned with management and uh, and not piling up a bunch of of unpaid things in front of them. Uh, they've done everything we've asked. They've been terrific partners. And again, if uh, if uh, if things go the way they think they are, we'll we'll both share in that upside. More more so than our typical. You know, pref up or down five or six percent would. Got it. Thanks. That's it for me. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. And at this time, Mr. King, we have no further questions. Please proceed. Okay. Thanks, Sylvie, and thanks everybody for uh, for tuning in. Uh, as always, uh, happy to answer any other questions uh, offline uh, if people have them. But we're ecstatic to have reported uh, what we reported uh, last night, and uh, look forward to, uh, to updating you again in three months. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, this does indeed conclude your conference call for today. Once again, thank you for attending, and at this time, we do ask that you please disconnect your lines. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.